Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Hey, welcome to the BJJ Mental Models Podcast, Episode 2. I'm Steve Kwan. I'm Matt Kwan. Thanks again for listening. This is our second episode. We've changed the audio dynamics a little bit. Hopefully the sound quality is a little bit better than before. Again, please bear with us. We are newbies at this. Um, quick recap of our previous episode for those of you who didn't listen to it. And I, I would encourage you to go back and do so because I think it was a good conversation about the topic of alignment in BJJ. A lot of what we talked about there is going to inform what we talk about today. But for those who have forgotten or maybe want a quick primer, uh, we ca- we talked about Rob Bernanke's theory of alignment, and basically the idea, and, and again, Matt, correct me if I'm wrong on this, is that you can think of jujitsu as a game of really three different principles that, that Rob collectively calls alignment. One of them is posture, meaning basically how effectively you are positioning and utilizing your spine. The second is structure, meaning the effectiveness of how you are positionally utilizing your limbs. And then the, th- the third is base, which is basically positioning your body in such a way that you can create and absorb force relative to your goals. So So really, the way that you can think of jujitsu is you've got these three factors and you want to keep those three at all times while simultaneously denying them to your opponents. And if you can do that, you can do jujitsu. That's 100% correct. I think that's very accurate. And uh, yep, please bear with us as we are playing with the audio, as my brother pointed out. And today we wanted to talk a little bit more uh, about some concepts such as uh, mechanisms, specifically uh, frames and levers. Yeah. And, uh, you know, one thing that Professor Rob always talks to me is, is uh, jiu-jitsu is not a game of, of moves, but a game of movement uh, and also a game of levers, okay? So knowing how to manipulate levers, uh, levers are force multipliers. So if I want to control Steve's shoulder, if I control the end of Steve's arm uh, of that shoulder and I utilize a proper wedging and fulcrum system, I should be able to have quite a bit efficiency in terms of controlling that corner of his body. Um, We're going to discuss some different ways that you can control levers and maybe some ways that you can improve some submissions. We're going to use an arm bar for an example and just talk about uh, some different mechanisms that we utilize in jiu-jitsu. When we speak about mechanisms, your main mechanisms mechanisms are going to be lever and fulcrum, wedges, clamps, and hooks. Um, And I don't know if I'm forgetting any of them. Frames? Frames, sorry. That's frames and levers. Huge one. Thank you, Steve. Um, <clears throat> frames and levers uh, specifically uh, right now. Frames and levers are super important um, to talk about with, with new students because they give them the concept that, yes, a lever is a force multiplier. And you can, you know, it, obviously it introduces the engagement phase. We talked about phases of guard last time. 
But framing is a concept of uh, that involves managing distance. And just like any combat sport, managing distance is a huge priority because if you lose the distance management uh, and you're just going in there scrapping, you're going to find yourself falling behind the sequence. And when you fall deep behind the sequence in jiu-jitsu, generally your opponent has made things very uncomfortable for you and they're either they've broken your alignment or they're on the way to further breaking your alignment, which is going to lead to uh, catastrophic results for you. Yeah. For me, I, the reason why I think this episode is super important is because if you want to give someone a conceptual framework for jujitsu, the first thing you're probably going to talk to them about is something like the, the theory of alignment, which is very high level. You're really talking about just very, very, very big ideas at that point. And once someone understands what those are, the, you know, the next question is, hey, that's all great, but how do I apply that? You know, okay, great. I understand posture structure base, but how does that help me armbar? These concepts are about mechanics. And this is the bridge between those high level ideas and how you actually do things on the ground. So when we talk about alignment and how you you gain proper alignment while taking it away from your opponent, these are the mechanisms that you use. And every single move you do in jiu-jitsu, whether it is a submission, a takedown, a sweep, or even just positional control, all comes down to using these mechanisms effectively. Now, the thing I like about the way that they're described here is I think everyone who's been training for a while kind of understands this stuff, at least at, at some subconscious level. But what Rob did really well was put together a framework of using names for these things and coming up with names that people can understand and share is so important to helping memorize and really internalize these lessons. So maybe we can talk about these a, a little bit at first. I would suggest, Matt, that maybe what we can do is just go through each one of these and kind of explain what they are and then maybe get into some examples and some some troubleshooting as to where these things actually apply in real life sparring. Again, this is a, a podcast where we're not going to be breaking down moves on a step-by-step -step tutorial style basis like you see on YouTube. Really, we're talking about mental models and big ideas, but if you understand these, hopefully they will equate to improved learning when you actually start trying to individualize certain techniques. So let's talk about perhaps frames first. Uh, this is something that I think regardless of what school you train at, you're going to have heard this term. Someone's going to have said, oh, you should frame, you know, frame to do this, frame to do that. But usually it's not really explained what that actually means. So Matt, how do you define a frame? What exactly would you say a frame is at the most basic state? Uh, essentially, like I said earlier, a frame is just, um, is just going to be, uh, an obstruction or, um, uh, a, bl a blocking, usually used using your limbs, um, use utilizing your limb to create uh, a, a block. I want to say the word frame, but that would be really bad for my <laughs> description. Um, but essentially, yes, you, it is just that it is framing to create distance. And ideally, when you create uh, frames, you're going to be able to manage distance. You know, you could use. Uh, we're going to talk and use some language that Ryan Hall used, which is really great. Definitely check out Professor Ryan Hall. You know, one of the first guys to conceptualize the teaching of jujitsu. Uh, the way he breaks it down is there's different ranges. Okay, so you've got like long range frames, medium range frames, close range frames. Okay, and he and he uses the analogy of weaponry. So if I'm going to use a long range frame, for example, my the sole of my foot, 
Okay, imagine I'm on my back in the open guard and the sole of my foot is taking the, um, the, the weight of my opponent. That is going to be the equivalent to my sniper rifle, right? That is a long range frame. It is a powerful frame. I have the ability to do a leg press with it. Very important when you're playing open guards. Then, you know, what if your opponent throws your leg to the side? Well, you're going to have your knees and your shins as frames as well. So that would be your mid range frame. Uh, or, or even, you know, you could look at it as a short range frame. I usually think about short range frame range frames as being with your arms. Uh, but you think about your hands being frames as well. Um, and your forearms being frames or your elbows. So different range frames for different positions. And it's just important to understand that when you're playing guard, uh, the, the goal the thing that Rob taught me, it's not necessarily about going for submissions and sweeps, even though that's what it looks like you're doing when you're, you know, you're playing guard, you're looking for positions and sweeps uh, and submissions, sorry, um, but more so just staying in alignment and managing your frame. So that could mean replacing frames. If your partner is passing your guard, how are you, how are you able to reincorporate your limbs into a, um, a structure that manages the distance effectively between you and you and your opponent. Once he instilled this idea into me about uh, don't even worry about sweeps and submissions, just worry about managing the distance. I realized that I was able to focus a lot on my guard retention and then organically these sweeps and submissions sort of uh, were, were able, they, they manifest themselves as I started thinking about bringing my opponent out of alignment while I maintain my own. Got it. Got it. Now, when it comes to frames, uh, I guess one of the things you really have to understand is that not all frames are, are good or strong frames. There's a difference between a frame that is effective and a frame that is a liability to you. I think an example I can give from personal experience is I remember when I was a blue belt, a guy was trying to pass my guard and to frame, I basically did the, um, not really a bench press, but I, I kind of, I did a straight arm, right? Like I stuck my arm out straight. I put my hand on his hip and he hip switched and which basically effectively wrist locked me <laughs> yes. because, because I left my hand out. We've um, all done it. We've all done it. And uh, another similar example being, and I, I think everyone can relate, you know, if you're playing open guard from the bottom, if you extend your legs and leave them there, they become a liability. Uh, you know, your opponent can grab them and use them to pass. So not all frames are, are good frames. I guess a follow-up question here would be what, what makes a frame good? Like if I'm, if I'm putting together a frame, what are the things I want to do to make sure that it's strong and that I'm also protecting myself when I'm doing it? Yeah, really great question. Um, like Steve was saying, you know, imagine you're, you're playing a spider guard or an open guard and you have your grips and you're extending your legs very strong, right? Now that, now, Against an opponent who's just putting weight on you, um, this is going to be an effective way to manage distance. However, if your opponent is moving around constantly, changing angles, and essentially controlling your frames, uh, he is doing what we call turning a, a, a frame into a lever, okay? And this is very important to understand. Um, if I'm on the bottom, I'm looking to manipulate my opponent's levers, and in doing so, I'm affecting their, sometimes their posture, their structure, and certainly their base, okay? So it's important to understand how to turn your opponent's frames into levers and also how to deny your opponent the ability to turn your frames into levers. This is a huge breakthrough. Uh, for me, it was an amazing change in my game when I understood this. I also think about, you know, you could grab your partner's leg 
or you could manipulate your partner's leg to gain um, internal or external rotation, thus controlling the lever to their hip. Okay, so legs are the levers to the hip and uh, arms are the levers to the shoulder. So if you can get some sort of rotation upon your opponent's limbs, usually internal, I find, is internal rotation, like a Kimura, is going to be one of the most effective ways you can control a person's shoulder. Um, but but back to back to frames and levers, making a frame a lever is going to give you a huge, uh, uh, it's going to make you change your partner's alignment very, very effectively. Um, yeah. So I, I guess, you know, an example that probably everyone has encountered is you have mounts, and your opponent knows now that you're going to attack some things, so they just kind of shell up. You know, they they bring their 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 arms up and they tuck in their elbows, and it's like trying to wrestle a turtle. All of a sudden, there's nothing for you to grab onto. They're taking their ball and they're going home. Basically, yeah, Bob calls it. Yeah. yeah, and you can also do that from side control as well, where you kind of shell up, and it it can be um, if done properly, it can be an effective defense. You know, you don't want to just sit there and do nothing, but when you shell up like that, you can start using your arms and and you know and your elbows for frames. And as the guy on the top what you want to do is you don't want to let him do that. You want to turn those frames into levers. That's so correct. instead of letting the guy, uh, you know, keep his elbows tucked in like that, you want to pry one of those elbows off and you want to start establishing a degree of control on his arm. So that's what you're talking about when you say, turn the frame into a lever, right? Don't just grab the guy because you can, but grab the guy and nullify his ability to use that limb as a frame and make sure that you can actually use it to control him. Yeah, exactly. And and I, we should also mention, because right now we're speaking in, uh, in frames uh, in terms of limbs, but also your spine is a really strong frame. In fact, mm-hmm. your spine is the strongest frame in your body. So, uh, you know, if your opponent is trying to do like a double unders pass, uh, or maybe you've got a triangle on your opponent and they're trying to stack you, you know, I struggled with this for years. I thought mm-hmm. that I was no good at triangles because my legs are too short. Every time I go for a triangle, my por- my opponent would either throw me to the side or they'd stack me. Why can't I get my legs into the position I want? And I and then I realized that once I get my hips up and apply my spine as a frame, I basically create a post throughout my my spine, and that's going to make it very difficult for my partner to effectively stack me because I put myself in posture and I used my spine to put myself in alignment. So once you use your spine and, and uh, as a frame and gain posture, tons of opportunities open up. As we all know, um, most of the time when you're trying to do things in jujitsu with just your extremities, it, the effect aren't. It's not very effective mm-hmm. using your core or using your spine as, as a frame and really engaging your, your torso is one of the best ways that you can actually make your jiu-jitsu effective and your wedges stronger. Yeah, this is something I'd love to talk about in a future episode. I've always called it the anatomic hierarchy, which is basically that you've got different regions of your body that have different levels of strength. And a very, very common mistake, even at a high level, is to not realize that your core is the strongest part of your body. And with almost every move, you want to find a way to engage your core rather than just using your arms or your legs. I like the example you brought up about a triangle because the interest interesting thing is that on the flip side, you're, you've described using your frame 
from a triangle when you're the guy doing the triangle. But the plan, I mean, everyone who's trained for a little bit knows this, the, the plan A defense to a triangle is to pot, keep your posture straight. And, and what you're doing then is basically you're using your, the guy who is defending is also using his spine as a frame because he's trying to prevent you from being broken down. And if anyone's ever tried to triangle a guy who has his back straight up, you know how hard that is. That's probably the main situation where you get stack passed from the triangle. So on one hand, you want to use your spine and raise your hips so that you have a solid frame when you're attacking the triangle. On the other hand, you want to find a way to make sure your opponent is not doing that because you need to prevent them from using their spine. And that's how you can effectively do a triangle on anybody, regardless of size. Yeah. And of, and of course, like we discussed last time, if you attack a triangle on somebody, uh, apply a triangle on somebody who has full alignment, you're, you're going to get your guard pass. Um, let, let's, let's imagine that we do have our opponent in the triangle now and their posture is broken. Uh, one, one thing that I used to have issues with, like I said, my legs felt so short when I would do triangle. There's a few things that I've discovered since then, um, that have really made my triangle stronger. But in terms of the choking mechanics aspect of it, I, I realized that driving my hips up into my partner's neck was one of the best things that, uh, really amplified my choking pressure. So again, uh, you can use frames like your spine for preventing guard passing or preventing submissions, but also finishing submissions. Um, you're going to get a lot more horsepower if you uh, harness the power of your hips. And also, like Steve was saying, when you're in the triangle, you want to posture up. That does not mean look up. That means thinking about the position of not only your, your neck and your spine, but also your hips. So generally when your hips go in, when, when you're inside someone's closed guard, it creates a shelf or a wall that makes it very difficult to attack from. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, looking up is great and all, but if your spine is still crooked or it's not properly aligned, the other guy's just going to pull your head right back down again. That's right. I like, I like, and also I like to think about driving my chest through the triangle if mm -hmm. possible. Um, and, and, and you shelfing know, their hips with my, with my legs. And you know, what's interesting is when you're talking about like an arm bar, this is, it's the exact same principle. You know, you want to engage your core, you drive your core, you use your core as kind of the, the main horsepower when you're doing an arm bar, the arms and the legs help, but they're really just there to hold the guy in position while your core does most of the work. And this is a common thing in a lot of different submissions. Um, even in like cross chokes and guillotines, being able to properly engage your core gives a lot of strength. Um, we can talk about that uh, probably at another time, but for now, just tying into frames, we talked about levers briefly, and these are kind of the, you know, in some cases, you could describe these as the counterpoint to frames. How do you define a lever? What is an effective lever in jujitsu? A lever is just like, obviously, um, we were discussing that your extremities are levers, right? Your arms and your legs. Also, your head can be used as a lever. Essentially, the head is the lever to your spine. So if you want to control someone's body, uh, you can utilize their head as a lever as well. But just, um, just realizing where the fulcrum is, depending on what you're trying to do, you can get tremendous effect by, by controlling a lever. So I like to use the example of a Kimura. Uh, we're big on the Kimura system at, at our school. And of course, Rob you know, has great Kimura concepts. It all focuses on, on control and using it as a system and a, and a control system as opposed to a submission, because you can go so many different places with the Kimura. So in terms of a Kimura, the, the, you know, having, having the end of the lever where you're pinning the end of the wrist and then you have a, a two on one. So the other arm is coming in and isolating the shoulder. You're creating kind of a, a two pronged attack on the lever, which is going to give you tremendous rotational control. 
Got it. So, you, you know, you're basically, you have the wrist as a point of torque, you have the shoulder as a point of torque, and the elbow is basically useless for the guy. That's right. And there's different types of levers. Like if you want to look at an arm bar, now the the actual work is being put into your opponent's elbow when you're going to finish the arm bar. It's a linear uh, submission instead of a, uh, a rotational submission like a Kimura. So with the arm fully extended, we're creating pressure on the shoulder joint, isolating with the proper wedging system with our legs. Obviously, we need to control the end of the lever with, uh, you know, your hands or your el- elbow pit, whatever you like. And then your hips are extending um, you know, into the elbow, into the proper direction that you want to finish the arm bar. So uh, there, there are different types of levers and it's important to understand this, but looking at arms and legs is nothing more than levers and uh, levers to be accessed on your opponent. You're going to be able to, um, you know, be very efficient when you're trying to control parts of your opponent's body. Yeah. I, I remember on the last episode, you talked about this briefly where you talked about how the the limbs, especially the arms and the legs, they have multiple joints and the pressure can flow and be released from one to the other. So if you, you know, if you don't properly secure all of the joints in someone's body right up to the shoulder or up to the hip joint, then that gives their body the ability to kind of compensate and move around. Uh, when it comes to levers and fulcrums, how do you find an, the effective fulcrum when you're applying a lever? Like with arm bars and knee bars, it's obvious, right? If you're controlling, the, if you're trying to go for like an arm bar, it's pretty obvious that the fulcrum is the elbow. Or for a knee bar, it's pretty obvious that the fulcrum is in, is the kneecap. But like, how does this stuff, how does this line up in practice? Where do you, how do you know where the fulcrum is when you're trying to control someone's lever? Well, basically, like if, if you think about an arm bar, when you go for the arm bar, and, the, and again, this is all professor rob i mean this guy's unreal when, when you go for an arm bar on somebody uh look at the hitchhiker's ex- escape for example probably the most fundamental escape you're going to learn in jiu-jitsu now i don't even like this escape anymore mm-hmm. i i think that this is actually a really poor way to escape the arm bar because it's so easy to stop and obviously over over voice recording it's hard it's difficult to explain but let's say you're in an arm bar the fulcrum what what i i need to create a fulcrum in my opponent's elbow now, let's say I'm holding my, my partner's arm and I'm pulling it down. What you're going to notice is naturally your opponent, if they're trying to hitchhike and turn away, what they're doing is raising their shoulder. So when your opponent raises the shoulder, the pressure from the elbow, the, you're trying to apply pressure into the elbow, it will bleed into the shoulder. And as a result, that it will act as a cushion, uh, sort of a... a a shock that will that will absorb the pressure and you will not be able to isolate pressure inside the elbow joint. So I know that I want to hyperextend his elbow. But if I don't have the proper wedging system on his shoulder, he will be able to po- possibly hitchhiker, but if he just even turns away, you'll notice that his shoulder elevates. Mm-hmm. So it's very important that if I want to apply some sort of break in this case an armbar, a linear joint submission where I want to apply pressure into the elbow, I need to have control of the end of the lever and I need to have control of the of the other end of the lever which is the shoulder and by control on the other end of the lever I mean immobilization through way of my my legs being wedges so if I can immobilize that shoulder so that it cannot raise now the pressure inside the mounting in the elbow will have nowhere to go and I'll get either a tap or a broken arm yeah yeah makes sense so really, I mean, same thing in terms of a, of a knee bar or, or even like, you know, for, for some people that know or are comfortable with the 411, I need to create a wedging system on the hip and behind the knee in order to prevent my partner from spinning out of my 411. 
if you're doing the 411 and you have the free leg, which is, you know, something some people might not know about, but like, let's say I'm in the 411, I have the free leg control with my arms. If, if I'm losing my partner's knee, it's because my wedging system is not strong enough and I don't have the proper control on my opponent's hip or behind his knee, depending on how he's escaping. So, I mean, generally, if you're going for submissions and uh, you feel like everything is in place, but your opponent keeps escaping and consistently escaping, you're probably going to want to go back and ask, first of all, how they're escaping and what you can do to make that a little bit more difficult for them to escape. And that's applying the proper wedges so that you've uh, isolated the lever and fulcrum. Yeah. And this, we can actually talk about this in a little bit more detail later, but whenever I find whenever you are losing a position or you're not getting the effectiveness in a move that you're expecting or wanting to get, the first three things you should ask yourself really are, do I, you know, have I established effective frames if applicable? Do I have effective lever control? And am I wedging where I need to wedge? And that's a really good way to troubleshoot any particular move. This is maybe a good transition to talk about wedges then. So this is kind of the other of the the three big mechanics that I know you talk about. So Frames basically are cr- using um, strong parts of your body, like your 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 elbows, you know, to to essentially create obstructions to block your opponent. Levers are latching onto your opponent and grabbing onto something that you can then manipulate by torquing. What's a wedge? So a wedge, um, the concept of a wedge is just. Uh, something that you will use on your opponent to immobilize a portion of their body. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, You could look at a wedge as, you know, you have an omoplata on someone, you could throw your leg over their shoulder and have the omoplata. But if you don't have the proper wedging system going on, on that shoulder, they will possibly be able to posture up and rip their arm up. Okay. So, um, you know, Rob has something called position versus uh, alignment. Okay. So like I could have an omoplata on someone. Aesthetically, it looks like an omoplata, but it's, it's actually, I haven't broke their alignment. Right Mm -hmm. now, if I, if I decide that instead of just throwing my leg over my opponent's head, I'm going to pinch my knee down behind their shoulder. It creates an incredibly powerful wedge that pretty much stops at the end, uh, stops at their shoulder and makes it very difficult for them to posture up. Then I throw my leg over as sort of a secondary thought to the wedge behind the shoulder because I want to immobilize that shoulder and I want to prevent my opponent from bringing their elbow back into their body, right? In this case, I'm just creating a wedge by occupying the space uh, in their armpit with my own body. In this case, it would be my thigh, right? Mm -hmm. Or if I'm, just think about a basic guard pass when I'm passing someone's guard, one one thing we didn't talk about in terms of frames another th- another great example of frames is is connecting two levers together so like a knee elbow connection mm-hmm. uh, kinetic chains right uh, connect chain but but the the uh, passing of a guard is essentially creating a wedge in between the knee and elbow so in mm-hmm. in the space between your opponent's belt and their armpit if you can occupy that space with an arm or uh, your body or even like a, a leg or a knee you're going to essentially be in a position where you have passed their guard and once you have passed their guard people always ask me you know what how do i stay heavy how do i be heavy on top well it i find it's actually less i mean being heavy is an important aspect of course being proper base and having proper weight distribution but being able to manage wedges and and place wedges effectively around your opponent's body uh, where their spaces is is a really important 
uh, concept in terms of holding top position. And not only will that help you hold top position and transition, but it'll help you isolate limbs better because once you create a wedge, let's say I'm in side control now on my partner and I, you know, I slip my arm underneath the far arm, you know, as if I'm going for like uh, just clasping my hands or even in the, in the opposite way, like a Kimura bringing my other arm over top and, and, and underneath their arm, I've created a wedge under that arm, effectively isolating it. Got it. Got it. So most of the examples you've talked about so far pertaining to wedges are in the context of I'm setting up parts of my body to basically block my opponent, my opponent's movement, right? Like I'm putting my, my elbow or my knee or my head somewhere. I'm taking away space so that my opponent can't go there, but you can also use a wedge offensively, right? Like, is it, would it be the case that when you're doing knee on belly, like the knee is effectively like a wedge right into the gut, you're using it as a weapon? Absolutely. Your knee, your knee and your shin, or if you want to use knee on belly as an example, or like essentially a shin ride, um, your shin and your leg is a wedge now that's, that is now uh, past your opponent's guard and it's preventing them from regarding. Mm. Right. And then, of course, how you're going to transition from there is going to depend on how your opponent regards. I didn't start learning about wedges until Professor Rob went and trained with Eddie Cummings, who at that time was training uh, at Enzo Gracie's in New York. He went there to learn some leg lock stuff. He did a week of privates with him. He came back with some really uh, primitive, fundamental concepts for leg locking and the main one was the idea of creating wedges around your opponent's limbs. Mm -hmm. And then of course, from there, professor Rob, he's, he's a friggin' autistic genius. Mm -hmm. So he just went and, and took that and obsessed over it. And me, him and Rory essentially kept working at this. I mean, Rob and Rory, uh, are really the true creators of the Island top team leg lock system. But the idea of wedging and immobilizing was one of the key parts of, of leg locking and even just jujitsu that I didn't even think really existed. Things that I already did, like, you know, when you're, you're inside control and you get a cross face, you're creating a wedge under your opponent's head, essentially, right? And, and, and having your knees close to your opponent's body, that's a wedge because you're immobilizing the movement of their hips. Granted, there's an elbow on the other side. So when he started teaching in, in terms of wedges, when we're doing leg locks, I realized, hey, this, this totally applies to all the submissions that I already do, mm -hmm. like arm bars. If you try and do an arm bar and your legs are just doing, you know, they're, they're just limp noodles, you're not going to get any breaking power. And as we discussed earlier, that's because you've allowed the pressure to flow into the shoulder. Yeah. Once the shoulder becomes mobile, you lose all the pressure of the arm bar. So understanding proper wedging systems, in this case with your legs, is going to make your arm bar so much more efficient and it's going to prevent your opponent from escaping. Yeah, the, the human being is a very, very adaptable machine, right? If you If someone is standing up and you push them, the body will instinctively rebalance itself, right? And like, you know, the human being is very good at adapting to pressure and absorbing and redistributing pressure. And one of the big benefits to wedges is they take away that option, right? Because by, by completely restricting your opponent's movement, you now have control over where the force goes. The other big benefit to wedges is that wedges take away options from your opponent. If you have wedged your opponent in a hundred different ways, 
then you've taken away options as to where they can go and what they can do. And jujitsu gets a lot easier when you know that your opponent has fewer options because you know what to prepare for. An, an example I can think of, um, I remember when I was sparring with my professor, it, this is kind of one of the times when wedging really came home to me, at least when using wedges as an offensive weapon. Um, my professor, Don Whitefield, I, you know, he's, um, I was sparring with him and man, I, I realized, you know, it just felt like all I was doing was getting like just connecting with like elbows and knees. That was it. Like I could never get a grip on a, on the end on his hand or on his leg or on his head. It was just like it was just elbows and knees coming at me. There was nothing else. And that's when I kind of realized it's because he's basically creating these strong, unexploitable wedges. He's not like wrapping his hand around me. You know, he's leading with the parts of the body that are very, very hard to exploit. He's basically using frames and, and wedges as a weapon against me. This is something that I, I tell to. Uh, you know, I, I tell to my wife when we're, we're training because she's she's trains too, but not to the not with the same um, experience that I have. You know, I, I always just tell her just use your pointies, right? Like if you want to defend yourself, one of the the first things that you want to do, especially against a bigger, stronger guy, is you know use your elbows and your knees as weapons. Don't push with your hands. Frame and use your elbows because that's a much stronger structure and is much much harder to uh, to counter, even if you're a big strong person. Um, so. We've got three core concepts that we've talked about here when it comes to the mechanics of jiu-jitsu. We've talked about frames, levers, and wedges. Are there any others, Matt, that you think are worth bringing into it? Or are, the, or are those kind of the big three that make up almost everything? I mean, those are kind of the main mechanisms that fundamentally I can I can teach jiu-jitsu with. But of course, there's going to be other things such as hooks and clamps, right? Like mm-hmm. a hook, you these... You got to realize all these things, frames, levers, wedges, they're all, they're all things that you're, that exist in the real world, but that we replicate in jujitsu with, uh, with our body parts, right? Mm -hmm. So like a hook or a clamp, a a hook is going to be used to elevate an opponent, usually like a butterfly hook or even like a Delaheva hook, right? This is where you're using your, you're making a connection. You're making a connection with your, the shoelaces or your instep of your foot around a portion of your opponent's body, right? And they they can serve different purposes, but most of the time a hook is going to be to elevate. Uh, A clamp, you know, generally the the best example I think about of a clamp is going to be like you're in half guard, you cross your ankles, or maybe you're in closed guard, you cross your ankles. Maybe you're in 411, you cross your ankles. Uh, It's important to think about a clamp as... um, it, it, it's a, it's almost like a wedge in that it can immobilize, but you're uh, by crossing your ankles in these certain positions, you're going to create again another kinetic chain inside of your your legs. Once once you uh, essentially create a circle, closing your ankles together, it really gives you a lot of strong breaking power, um, and this is very very. Uh, very, very, a big part of our Island Top Team leg lock system, especially when we're looking to get braking mechanics. Got it. So really the, you know, what you're describing to me when you're talking about like hooks and clamps, uh, these, these are in a lot of ways no different from what we talked about earlier. Like a hook is and a clamp. These are really just ways to establish levers, right? That's all it is. Like if I'm, if I'm, if I have a Delaheva hook on you, that's just a lever. It's just a particular way of doing it. Exactly. Got it. So really everything kind of funnels into those, those three big core mechanics. And I think then when you're 
struggling with a move if, or, or even if a move is effective and you just want to make it more effective, really one of the questions to ask yourself is how effectively am I utilizing these mechanics? Do I, you know, it, it, am I, could I be framing better? This is especially important in defensive situations. Um, you know, can, can I establish lever control? Can I have better control over the lever? And wed, with wedges, you know, can I, can I take away my opponent's options by, by restricting movement using wedges? Or even can I lead with a wedge and use it as a weapon? And, and for uh, instructors listening out there, it's really important to – the reason that I started I, – I, when Rob was talking about these types of, of mechanisms and all this, all this scientific language – at first, I, w- I didn't know what to think of it. I was like, hey, well, this is like, like I'm, do- I'm doing pretty good at jiu-jitsu so far. Maybe I'm just going to keep, you know, doing, doing what I'm doing. But then I realized once I started programming my mind to see not a, a, a person fighting me, but a skeleton essentially with frames and uh, with wet, uh, levers and I'm able to exploit them with, with wedges. And, you- and I was applying this language to my, uh, my everyday sparring scenarios not only did it break it down so much easier for me to understand, but but for me to relay this information to my teammates and, and my students, it became so much more easy. Because when I say, uh, you know, a lever, everyone knows what I'm talking about. When I say... Um, you know, when I, when I describe how I'm doing an arm bar and I say I'm, wedge, I'm creating a series of wedges around the shoulder... Those are th- that language parallels throughout all of jujitsu. So it's very, uh, it's very beneficial. I found for instructors when they're trying to say exactly why they're doing something and why something works. It's very important to understand frames, levers, wedges, posture, structure base, all of the alignment stuff that we're talking about. Got it. Yeah. So in terms of how these things all fit together, you know how. These are the core mechanics of jujitsu, but how do they tie into the alignment stuff we talked about before? I mean, if I could give maybe a, an example, and again, Matt, you can help correct me if I'm wrong on this. Um, let's say that I'm going for like a knee bar on somebody, right? Really what I, you know, as per what we talked about on the last episode, I, if I want to effectively control someone and ultimately submit them, I need to have posture, structure, and base, and I need to deny that to my opponent. So you know, common problem with the knee bar. And I bring up the knee bar because the leg is such a strong part of the body. I mean, it's, it is very hard to just get a straight knee bar if you're just going to pulling back on the guy's leg. So one of the core things that people always tell you with the knee bar is, oh, well, you want to twist his knee as well. You don't want to just pull straight back. Um, so how does that tie into this? The reason in, for my mind, you know, the, the, the leg is ultimately the lever, right? You are, when you have control over that leg, you are using, you're grabbing that lever and and you are also when you pinch into your opponent and, you know, you're basically creating wedges to prevent him from extracting that leg. And when you add that rotational control to the leg, so you kind of, you know, you grab the heel and you twist it a bit. Like that's a heel hook almost. Almost like a heel hook. The reason you do that is because you're breaking his structure, right? The leg is a very, very powerful, solid structure. But when you twist that leg out of alignment, it breaks the structure and that, that, that effectively kills his alignment. Because if you try to just do a straight knee bar where you're just pulling back, you haven't really broken his alignment yet. And there's still a chance that it might not work. But that twist takes away the structure, right? De- definitely the, um, the twist is going to apply more pressure. But I would say that uh, breaking the structure essentially happens when you've, I mean, you've, you've got to unlock the leg, right? And yeah, we, uh, that's the main part. If the guy's yeah. got his legs crossed, then he has ultimate structure there, yeah, right? Yeah, but, but here's the thing. When the guy crosses his legs, you have the ability, you have 
the leg that you're attacking is is in between your legs, right? Mm-hmm. We can all visualize a knee bar. If you can control the free leg, which is the other leg, the unentangled leg, you are going to have both levers of your partner's hip controlled, which is going to, you know, they might be able to roll around a little bit, but it is going to heavily immobilize them. So breaking their structure, once you get control of these levers and you have the ends of their levers uh, combined with proper wedging, that is going to be the true breaking of structure. The tw- the twisting, I think, is just a nice detail to add to the finishing mechanics themselves. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, sometimes you're in an arm bar and uh, to get, you know, you, you want to control the thumb, right? So you mm-hmm. dictate which way the uh, elbow points that is going to make it, you're going to know exactly where your fulcrum point needs to be. In this case, we're discussing essentially turning a knee bar into kind of a hidden heel hook, which is an mm-hmm. awesome detail. Um, back to wedges. If I have, if I have my partner in a knee bar, we tend to think that I want to, uh, you know, I'm going to grab the end of their leg and I'm going to lean back, right? Like, like if you've ever seen boss Rudin show a knee bar, that like 20 year old instructional, he's, he's extending his body all the way back. Okay. We call this follow through room. Mm-hmm. The key here is not actually extending your hips all the way back, even though it looks deadly. Just keep in mind, this is exactly the same concept as the arm bar. So if I do that, but my legs are not effectively wedging and immobilizing my opponent's hips. The pressure bleeds. The pressure bleeds. My opponent will have mobility. They will be able to absorb and, and move around. When I do knee bars, so much when uh, it's not so much how you are. Obviously, you need to you need to extend the leg. That that, that has to happen. But just like the armbar, it's not so much about your follow through room. It's more about your ability to immobilize their hip once you immobilize their hip the follow-through room you don't even need a lot of follow-through room as long it's more about in this case you cross your ankles uh creating a closed circuit or a closed wedge or essentially you're clamping around their their leg and then you're pulling your heels into your butt so when your ankles are crossed your hip pressure is going to be enormous not so much about leaning back but more about how your wedges are pulling uh Essentially, you're pulling your heels to your butt, applying more pressure with your hips, locking down their hips. You know, what's funny is you and I were talking about something similar to this right before we started recording. And that's that, you know, we both we both realized that, you know, if you want to attack an armbar, really, a lot of the time, the secret to attacking an armbar is not pulling on the arm that you've got. It's controlling the arm on the other side or the shoulder on the other side. And this all kind of comes back to the fact that the human body is really good at redistributing pressure to prevent discomfort, right? If for the longest time, when I tried to armbar somebody, I, I thought I had it all perfect, but I would go to arm, I go to you know pull on their arm, and there'd be just too much space, and they'd retract their elbow, and then I'm on bottom. And I realized quite recently that really the big problem is I was focusing too much on controlling the near arm, but controlling just the near arm is not enough because the human body can still move. He's still got a lot of movement if his far arm and the rest of his body can do whatever he wants. It's about establishing wedges around the far arm. So I have I have the near arm as a lever and then I use my, my feet or e- even my hand sometimes to wedge his far shoulder so that he actually can't move that either. And it's similar with a lot of leg entanglements, like you said, where it's like, yeah, you can have your body all wrapped around one leg in in a standard ashy or in any other position like that, but the guy's ability to get out and scramble out and move is greatly enhanced if you're not controlling that far leg as well. 
Yeah, and and we were comparing arm bars to the four eleven, right? Like mm-hmm. anyone out there who plays four eleven, um, you know, you're you're in that position, the inside sinkaku. Your legs are triangled or wedging around the leg you want to heel hook. If you just focus on heel hooking that leg, and the free leg has the ability to get into base, right? They're they're building alignment by putting that foot in a base, turning away. All of a sudden, the heel hook that was there is gone because your opponent turns their foot out and that hides the heel. So you can't expose the heel. This is such a, a, a big problem with, with uh, the heel hook against really good opponents. Against people that don't know leg locks, you're going to heel hook them every time, okay? Uh, because still, leg locks are becoming more powerful, but because of the fear-mongering of, of the IBJJF and, and certain individuals, um, you're not going to have a deep understanding from even a lot of high-level grapplers. However... Going to the heel hook, your your legs are essentially creating wedges around the leg that you plan on attacking with the heel hook, and your hands are controlling the free leg. There, you're going to have double, uh, you're going to have, well, what Dan Hur calls double trouble, but essentially two legs, uh, two levers to your opponent's hips. That's going to prevent them from turning away, and it's also going to keep the heel hook available because they can't extend, or sorry, they can't hide their heel anymore. So it's the same thing for an armbar, like you're saying, when you, your legs are essentially wedging around the arm that you want. And you're keeping the, obviously you have to keep the elbow line. And then your hands are going to focus on, you know, not only controlling that arm, but, but trying to control the far lever as well. Once you do that, your opponent is essentially in a straight jacket position and it's going to leave them with very little ability to roll out and move out. So it's, you know, all of these concepts tie into control rather than how to finish a submission, right? Mm -hmm. Finishing the submission is a byproduct of control. So one of the big things that, um, that I got from Professor Rob is how can we use control to lead to a submission rather than thinking about how can I make my game so submission heavy? I want to be such a submission artist. Yeah, well, you can't do that without control. If you if you are doing that, you're probably creating some false positives in your school because there's people that don't know how to defend, and that's a real problem too. That maybe we could discuss in another on another day. You know, I, I was actually just teaching this this afternoon in in class. We were working on side control control. <laughs> So, and the thing I, I explained was that, you know, whenever someone teaches side control, usually they start with some submission and they say, oh, here's how you do an Americana from side control. But my advice to the, to the team was don't even think about submissions. Don't, don't get into side control and think it's Kimura time. I'm going to do a Kimura from here. The submission is irrelevant. Um, what you need to focus on is systematically breaking and dismantling your opponent and taking away his weapons one by one. It, if you're in side control and your opponent has framed properly and you can't get your your arm under his head, it doesn't matter what submission you want to do. It ain't going to happen, right? The guy's going to get out of there as soon as you start making space. Uh, what you need to do is you need to isolate his limbs. You want to isolate his head. You want to isolate his arms and you want to crank up the pressure. Just repeat, repeat, repeat. You want to start isolating, 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 taking away his ability to move and his ability to generate force. And eventually you get to the point where submissions are almost inevitable, right? I mean, if you're, if you're relatively experienced and you're sparring against like a high level guy, you'll notice this. And you know, when I'm sparring against someone way better than me, it's not like they just jump on me and Kimura me and it's done. It's not like a flash submission. What winds up happening is the position just gets progressively shittier for me (laughs) over and over, pardon the language, but just progressively worse. You know, it starts off and then suddenly my arm is trapped and then my other arm is trapped and now I can't move my head and I know what they're going to do. And then they do it and I can't stop them because every part of my body is controlled. 
controlled. And that's really the way that you should be thinking about jujitsu. The submission should not be your focus. The focus should be on turning up the dial on control to the point where a submission just kind of happens because there's nothing else for your opponent to do. Um, on, on that topic too, you know, as, as it pertains to side control, the, the, the thing about side control that, that people often do incorrectly at a, at a junior level is they kind of lie on the person like a heavy blanket and they feel like, oh, this is what side control is about. Side control is about weight heavy. and pressure. Yeah. Um, and man, if you've ever sparred with someone who's way bigger than you, you certainly can tell that in some situations this works, right? I mean, but... Or even in nogi, yeah, where there's no grips or anything Yeah, like yeah. That. I mean, you know, weight, weight matters in side control, but side control, the power of side control is actually mobility and being able to generate strong pinpoint force. Um, the, the thing that I, I taught today was, you know, if you're, if you've got side control on a person, rather than trying to lie on them like a blanket, think of wedges, right? You know, a, a wedge is all about leading with, you know, basically minimizing the surface area of where you're putting down force. So the example I gave was, Hey, rather than just sitting on the guy, do the shoulder of justice, you know, turn to the side, put all your weight on your shoulder and drive it into the guy's jaw to turn it away from them. Which is essentially, sorry to interrupt, essentially accessing his jaw as a lever yes. to his spine. Yeah. It's accessing the jaw as, is using the head as a lever it's breaking his posture because you're turning his head away and you're using your shoulder as a wedge because rather than lying on the the guy, you are dropping all of your weight down onto a single point of your body. And, uh, you know, if, if you, if you recall from, you know, just basic physics, if you can minimize the surface area of where you're putting your force, it's going to be a lot more powerful. If rather than just flopping on the guy like a blanket, if I'm putting all of my pressure into a single pinpoint area of my body, like I'm using my shoulder and all my weight's going through my shoulder or through a knee or something, it's going to be a lot harder for the guy on the bottom to get out of that. Um, this is something that I, I think is effective as a troubleshooting technique. You know, when you're, when you want to learn why your moves aren't working, or if you have a move that is working and you just want it to be better, ask yourself, you know, when it comes to the core mechanics, how are my levers? Am I properly controlling levers? Uh, in addition to the levers, have I wedged my opponent in such a way that this lever control is actually effective? You know, if you if you've just got the arm, if you armbar and you just have control over the arm and you're not pinning the far shoulders, you have an opportunity to use wedges there to really pin the guy in position, right? Exactly. And, and yeah, the way that I think about it is, uh, you know, activating the lever, not necessarily just like, am I, gra you know, if I'm, if I'm, uh, playing, uh, like, a, a say I'm playing bottom open guard or seated guard and I grab my opponent's wrist, you know, if he recoils and is able to pull his wrist right back, did I, I may have grabbed his, his, his wrist, his lever, but did I activate it? Yeah. In there's, there's more efficient ways that you can always quote, activate levers. So for example, if I can uh, gain some internal rotation with a two-on-one on my opponent's wrist, I'm therefore going to have rotational control of his shoulder, which makes it a little bit more difficult for him to uh, dictate which way he's going to face me. So I can now enter in for leg entanglements or I can just prevent him from passing my guard. Um, yeah. And another way to really make levers more powerful is to establish a wedge on the far side. I mean, we talked about this in the context of arm bars and, and leg entanglements, but I mean, just today, Matt, when you and I were sparring, um, you arm drag me and then you put your head up against my shoulder on the backside using it as a wedge. 
So you had my arm as a lever and then you had a wedge behind me so I couldn't extract that lever, which sucked for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and, and as a result, you couldn't extract that arm. You could not square up to me. Exactly. Therefore, I had rotational, con- well, you know, for a moment there, I had rotational control of your body, but that that's how I'm going to be able to get to the back position by keeping my head uh, as a wedge behind your shoulder and preventing you from squaring up to me again. Yeah. I, I should also mention that earlier when we were talking about framing, it's very important that when you're framing that you're in base as well. So uh, depending on, you know, there's infinite scenarios that we could be talking about, but I need to have, I need to be in base when I'm framing. And generally I'm in base, uh, um, you know, if, if, if someone's passing my guard, and my hips are turned the other way, right? So maybe my opponent grabbed my leg and leg dragged me. They're using the lever to my hip to redirect my hips facing away. Once my hips are facing away, it's very difficult for me to now frame up successfully because where my hips go, my spine wants to go. So I end up trying to frame the other way with my hands. I'm going to be twisting my own spine and breaking my own posture. Your posture and your base to some degree have been nullified at that point. Exactly. So, so when I'm framing, I, I would like to have my feet in base, um, or, you know, ideally my back in base, you know, or my, my shoulders, it, it all depends on the situation, but just know that if I am trying to create a strong frame and, and, and especially when I'm regarding, I will need to get in base to get mobile and to be able to also apply, uh, to apply a frame that's successful. Right? Yeah. I, Some, if I don't have base, then I don't have that platform that I can apply the force in yeah. whatever direction I desire relative the, to The simplest goal. way that I can think about it is that a frame is used as a distance controlling mechanism, right? Um, if you don't have base, uh, base is about movement. If you don't have base, you really can't move and you can't move to respond to your opponent's movement. If you have a frame, but you don't have base, you can't move. And if you can't move, there's nothing stopping your opponent from just walking right around your frame. They don't have to deal with your frame, right? A, a common example here is like if if you're trying to pass someone's guard and they knee shield. Well, you can just, to some extent, you can just back out and walk around the, the knee shield, right? You never try to go through a frame directly. So that's the reason why having base on the bottom is so important. You have to be able to respond to your opponent's movement as well as just dealing with the frame itself. Exactly. Or for the example, if someone does like a, a bullfighter pass, a Toriano, and then they, they get to, you know, they put their foot next to your hip and you're framing with your hands. So yes, you've created pretty successful frames with your hands, but your opponent has created a wedge next to your hip. So it's technically he's past your guard. We're in the, now the uh, recovery phase of guard, as we discussed last time, the third phase, right? He's about to get points essentially for this position you the common thing that beginners do is they try and throw their feet right over top but nothing happens because you you do not have the correct distance needed to get your feet back inside now if you get your guard pass there and you put your feet in base it's counterintuitive to put your feet on the ground when you want to have your feet in front of your opponent but putting your feet on the ground is going to allow you to get your hips mobile. You can do a successful hip escape. And now we can circle yeah. our outside foot on top. We can top step and create a, a really strong frame with the sole of our foot. So being in base is going to give you the mobility needed to manage distance and replace frames. Yeah. So you're, you're saying basically rather than trying to do the quote unquote 
um, you know, throw the leg over guard recovery, rather than just thinking about the technique, you're saying, forget the technique, focus on having proper alignment, focus on keeping, you know, on framing effectively on having base. And then from there, if you do that, good things will eventually happen. It, It doesn't really matter what guard recovery technique you use as long as you're safe the whole way through and eventually you do recover you don't need to necessarily focus on one technique bullet point right that's right yeah and, and everything just comes back to managing the distance whatever kind of a guard you prefer uh just make sure that you have posture structure base you have proper frames and you know you're you're not getting your guard pass. Like if you're in half guard, make sure your opponent's not flattening you out unless you're a huge lockdown player, which there are those out there. Um, I'm somewhat partial to it. I mean, I, I understand it has a lot of weaknesses, mostly centered around what it does to your own base. Because <laughs> yeah. you're, you're basically forcing the guy to sit on top of you and that has yeah. limitations, and but there's a time and a place for it. There is a time and a place for it. I use it only in dire circumstances generally. Yeah. I it's, mean, It's like my plan B. And, and I don't mean to shit on anyone. Like uh, the lockdown is, it can be quite a formidable tool for those Mm -hmm. that are really good at it there's a ton of great submissions that you can get like electric chair and all that stuff Mm -hmm. but when you're in half guard generally you want to be on your side right Mm -hmm. so so it's hard to do the lockdown when when um when you're on your when you're on your side like generally i find it when i'm on my back flat and when Mm -hmm. i'm on my back flat my shoulders and my hips are facing the ceiling my opponent's force vector is coming down on me from the side Mm -hmm. so i haven't matched his force vector with the angle of my hips so i consider that being a bit out of alignment Uh, generally speaking in the half guard you know you always want to be on your side so just think about that as well when you're recovering guard. Let's say you're playing the half guard. The angle of your hips and, of course, your ability to manage frames and be in base is really important. Yeah, yeah. Lockdown is a move that I, you know, I'm somewhat partial to it. But like you said, I, I and like I said, I, I use it as a plan B. It's not where I want to go. But sometimes your opponent puts you there. Uh, and the, the thing about lockdown that you have to bear in mind is because you are basically on your butt, And because your opponent is on top of you, number one, uh, it's really hard to effectively generate base from there as the guy on the bottom because your legs are entangled around the other guy's leg. And while that's the case, you can't really use your feet to generate force. Um, The other thing to bear in mind is because your opponent is directly on top of you, they can wrap their their arm around your head. They can create pressure that way, which breaks your posture. So you got to be ready for that. Like if you go to lockdown and you let the guy grab his, put his arm around you and and squish your head, um, that can be a real problem for you. But if you can control that, you can really i mean that control you have over the leg um when you're entangled around it that lever control it can be ultra effective i mean i i used it to great success in the past but it wouldn't be my preferred way of dealing with half guard simply because there are other options in half guard where i don't need to compromise my base and my and my posture like that yeah if, if you're a big like player of half guard you like things like lockdown and reverse Delaheva, you gotta you gotta be concerned about your opponent cross facing you mm-hmm. because once they it's cross, an immediate posture killer basically. it's an immediate posture killer and it can also lead to neck problems down the yes. road right you got to protect your necks right so you don't want to you don't want to be eating cross faces and basing a game around you know yeah. always being in the cross face that's not a yeah. wise thing to do if jujitsu is something you want to do into your later years and side note if like me you work in an office eventually you get tired of explaining to people why you look like a like a, a victim of like domestic abuse when you go into the office so <laughs> learning to block the cross face becomes very very important in that situation yeah and and it's it's interesting how you mentioned the lockdown you're not able to get your feet in base because they are being used to mm-hmm. uh apply a clamp around your opponent's leg 
But in situations like the lockdown and um, deep half guard, for example, this same sort of thing, deep half guard, your legs are, are usually either clamped around your opponent's leg uh, as you're underneath their hips, or maybe you're creating a, like a butterfly hook to elevate mm-hmm. that leg. Either way, if a different type of uh, lever control here, you don't have the ability to put your feet in base for these positions. But what you what you can do is you can swing their leg out like hand, mm-hmm. a hand on a clock, yeah. which is essentially going to dictate where their hips go. Yeah. So if you're an effective deep half guard player, and you know, granted, you're doing the right things with your arms and staying in alignment with your spine, your posture, you'll be able to swing your opponent's leg, and maybe you end up on the back, yeah. or maybe you can come out through the. Uh, on top through, you know, the classic, classic deep half guard sweep. So again, just another form of lever control where you are um, using a lever to shift your opponent's center of gravity and creating openings for you. Yeah. So that, that's a situation where you've made an intentional trade. You've said, I may have compromised my base, but I've also taken your base away. So now it's going to come down to posture and structure, right? If we, if we were to um, use the, the scorecard game that we talked about earlier, you know, when you're talking about things like lockdown, for example, or, or even deep half, you know, the guy on the bottom, um, you have to be very concerned about losing your posture if you get yeah. uh, cross-faced. Your base is going to be very compromised, but so is the guy on top. Yeah. Um, so it ultimately, I find in a lot of cases, comes down to a structure battle. <laughs> it, yeah. it comes down to, is the other guy able to control my arms? Am I able to control his? What can I do with this leg that I've got entangled, right? Yeah. And you should learn the crab ride. You should definitely you should learn check the crab. out my DVD coming yeah. out. This Where year. can you learn the crab ride? <laughs> yeah, I got a DVD coming out on the Barambolo and the crab ride. It's got some really good stuff. Uh, it's with Stefan Kesting and Rob Bernacki, of course, like really, really took a lot of his time to help me prepare and design this DVD so that it's going to be as best as it can be. And, you know, we, we went through a lot of hoop, like hoops. We did a lot of we did beta filming and and a lot of stuff to make sure that this is going to be some really good material. So to add that upside down, uh, upside down part of your game, like for instance, I just say that because when I think about exiting the deep half, a lot of time I end up upside down, and it's a great option rather than just some old school deep half finishes. So crab ride dvd definitely check it out yeah it's, it's a good option for everyone to have and the reason why i mean I'm, I'm someone who is not super fluent in uh the world of the upside down but the way that i like to describe it is you know jujitsu is mostly a game of advancing through predefined it, well, not it's not really really but people think of it as a way of advancing through like the positional hierarchy you know you go from uh, you know, standing to guard to passing to mount or back. There's kind of this road that you follow. The cool thing about inversions and crab rides is it's like a it's like a teleporter to another dimension. Like ra- rather than going down that road, you can skip right to the back if you know how to do it effectively while maintaining control the whole time and not putting yourself at risk. Now, granted, that's where most people go wrong is they don't have control and they put themselves at risk. And hopefully, that's that's what your DVD is going to be able to address for the people out there. Yeah, I just want to uh, introduce that type of a game to so many, uh, to as many people as I can. Um, of course, the younger generation is going to probably already be using this stuff because you know it's very, it's very common in high level jujitsu now. So it's it's definitely something that you will see. But um, if you don't know how to defend it at all, you're going to be in trouble. So definitely check that out and, um, you know, add it to your game. It's a it's a really great option. I use it all the time. Um, it is really effective and it's going to have a lot of great, 
great things that you can do with your training partners to become better at inversions, barambolos, and just uh, have an idea of what you're doing when you're going upside down there. Yeah, so that's and, my shameless plug. <laughs> and as always, um, if you want to see our, our detailed database of the mental models that we've documented, go to bjjmentalmodels.com. That's our home website. It's also where there's a link to the podcast. Matt, just to do a, a quick recap then of what we talked about today, you know, in, in the first episode, we talked about alignment. Basically, that means posture, structure, and base. Today, we talked about the core mechanics of jujitsu, which basically means like, how do you get alignment in, in practice and how do you take it away? from your opponent the main mechanisms are going to be levers which basically means you know grabbing and isolating and controlling one of the things sticking off of your opponent's body uh, so his legs his his arms or his neck levers being number one frames as well frames meaning creating strong obstacles with your body to prevent your opponent's uh, movement and to control the distance and then wedges meaning basically to take away space around your opponent so that they have fewer options they can't move wedges can also be used offensively as in the case of neon belly or the shoulder of justice from side control or joint locks as we were discussing 411 and arm bars and all that stuff got it cool i think that's all for today thank you so much matt yeah thanks a lot steve take care guys enjoyed